you know, we've been studying Paul's letter to the Philippians, and the topic has been joy regardless. And it really could not have been a better, really a better, a better direction for us to take during the months that we have been kind of sheltering in place and all of the, kind of all of the things connected to this COVID-19. And honestly, when you think about the last five months, there, there are so many different things that could just, I guess you could say, just blow up our joy. But, you know, we've, we've been able to navigate that, and at the same time, there's a lot of things that can blow up our joy. There's also some things that we've learned about sustaining and deepening our joy, things like unity and prayer and attitude and so many other things during the course of the series. But I really can't think of a better topic to consider than the one that we're going uh, to discuss today to help us sustain and deepen our joy regardless. And here's the word, contentment, contentment. And I want to tell you, to be content, it is, you know, let me tell you, it is important in maintaining our joy, sustaining our joy, and deepening it. Uh, there was an article written, I think about four years ago, in a, uh, in a publication called The Stream. And Joshua Charles is the, is the author of this article. Now, I'm just going to warn you, it's a little bit long. And it's longer than I would normally like to read, especially if this was a live audience, it would be a little different. So it's a little more difficult to connect with me. Why don't you stay with me? Because there, is some, there are so many powerful truths here that I want us to, to understand and let it form a foundation of the idea of being content. Are you ready? Here we go. Joshua Charles writes, I believe we live in one of the absolute best times to be alive, and too many of us don't even know it. Speaking materially, regular people in America have their struggles, no doubt. We aren't a utopia, but we are the wealthiest and most well-off we have ever been. And yet, look where we are. It is often claimed that regular people are falling behind, barring the fact that this has been said since time immemorial. What evidence is there to support it? Well, virtually none. The income of the average American has risen drastically in real terms in the last 40 years. The average American home is 1,000 square feet bigger than it was 40 years ago. The average American diet is 500 calories per person more than it was 40 years ago, and we can all say amen to that, and we have the residual effects, right? So the average American turned a wheel multiple times to call somebody four years ago. Now we have smartphones that give us access to virtually any media information or person in the world, and it fits in the palm of our hand. Life expectancy has gone up over a decade in the last 40 years. Is healthcare too expensive? Yeah. Is education too expensive? Yes. Do we have inequities in our society? Yes. But none of that can obscure, listen to this, the absolute stunning material advances that, we have, that have been made in the last four decades. And yet, look how dissatisfied everyone is. Have we ever seen more people, people so entirely accustomed to complaining and making excuses for everything under the sun? Have we ever, have we ever been this utterly spoiled before? 
Have we ever been a society or ever seen a society so well off, but at the same time so full of people claiming the fact that they don't have even more is a matter of justice? Don't misunderstand me. We're far from perfect and we have a lot of problems to fix. But the point remains, despite all the claims constantly being made about our material condition and how Americans are suffering and falling behind over all the material condition of our society, and the average American has never been better. We have never had it as good as we have it right now. So has, has this abundance induced thankfulness on our part? Has it induced awe and wonder at our utterly fantastic situation and appreciation for how rare it is, even compared to the rest of the world today, does the average American realize that they live a more materially comfortable life than the czars of Russia just 100 years ago? The answer to all of the above is no. We have not a clue how good we have it. And the fact that we do not is indicative of the profound crisis of spirit that is making itself felt in this country. The fact that we fall for the narrative of grievance in the midst of such unparalleled prosperity shows the depths to which we have fallen. We're so unconcerned, dissatisfied with, or apathetic about spiritual things that our demands, expectations, cravings for material things have become way out of proportion. We have less security spiritually, so we seek it out materially. And Americans who represent the proverbial 1% of the world have almost certainly forgotten the wisdom of poor Richard, a.k.a. Benjamin Franklin, who said, to be content, look backward on those who possess less than yourself, not forward on those who possess more. If this does not make you content, you do not deserve to be happy. This is, in my opinion, why we are where we are right now, an age that is experiencing a level of prosperity and material well-being never before seen in world history and yet so rife with envy, greed, entitlement, and narcissism. We are a people of full bellies and empty hearts. We have neglected the weightier matters of the law. We have sown the wind and are reaping the whirlwind. Our own success is undermining us and sapping our strength. Oh, my goodness. What an incredible indictment on our contentment. Dissatisfaction seems to be the rule of the day. And, and because of our dissatisfaction, if there's been any joy, it's elusive at very best. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, I'm grateful that Paul helps us. So I want to I want to encourage you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to begin reading at verse 10. Just three verses. Actually, four verses, 10 through 13. Verses 10 through 14, 13, excuse me, Philippians chapter 4. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Father, thank you for your word. Speak life to us. In Jesus' name, amen. As Paul concludes this book, he addresses learning contentment. Now, what is, what is it that you have learned to do over the last five months? Some of us right now are experiencing what we've learned. We've learned how to embrace technology differently. 
Some of you have learned how to do Zoom meetings, which you've never done before, nor did you ever see the need to do it. You've learned it. So here's what I want to leave with you. To be content is something that we can learn. So we're going to look at five different ways in which we can learn contentment that the Apostle Paul helps us. Number one is to first be grateful. Be grateful. Paul says it this way, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you renewed your concern for me. That's essentially a statement of gratitude. Now, if you continue through, the, through chapter number four, you're going to see three different times where gratitude is referenced. For example, Paul would say it this way. I just read it all, but I'll read it again. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you, you at last, you renewed your concern for me. You continue on, verse 14, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Verse 18, the gifts you sent are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice. In each of those phrases, the word thankfulness or gratitude isn't mentioned, but it is certainly at the heart of everything that Paul is saying. He's grateful. Consider this thought. Gratitude and contentment are best friends. Where you find the one, you'll find the other. Now that is so significant and so true. When when we are truly thankful, when we're truly thankful, discontent or dissatisfaction, they just simply don't have any place in our life. They're essentially just pushed aside. Now, I get it. It's sometimes really easy to be grateful for the, for the really big things, but not so much for the small things. But Paul helps us in Ephesians chapter number 5 when he says, Always giving thanks to, the God, to God our Father, look at this word, for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, gratitude and contentment are best friends. When we are content, gratitude is going to follow. And we are to be grateful for everything in our life. The second thing is that we need to declare We need to declare enough is enough. We need to declare enough is enough. Paul says it this way. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Now, think about it. For some people, for some people, enough is just never enough. The the Greek philosopher Socrates, he said, he who is not contented with what he has would not be contented, (laughs) I love this, would not be contented with what he would like to have. Think about that for a minute. Think about it. One more time. He who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he'd like to have. There it is. John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men of his generation, was asked this question. How much money would it take to satisfy a rich man? He said, just a little more. You see, there, there, is, this, there is a... A principle here. Paul says it clearly. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Declare enough is enough. Declare enough is enough. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse number 10 says, those who love money will never have enough. There it is. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. That's profound. Also, Paul says to Timothy, he says, so if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Shoes on our feet, 
a roof over our head. Let me tell you something. Food on the table. What a blessing that is for each of us. Contentment, contentment is not the fulfillment of what you want, but the realization of how much you already have. That is so powerful. Let that get into your soul. A third, we need to remember that contentment is not circumstantial. It's not circumstantial. Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content, whatever the circumstances. Okay, that is, that is critical. Contentment, catch this. Contentment is the state of the heart, is a state of the heart that is unaffected by outward circumstances. This is a heart change matter. It's a heart change. You might be familiar with the name Viktor Frankl, or maybe not, but he wrote a book entitled Man's Search for Meaning. Now, why is, why is Viktor Frankl an important figure to be considered? He survived the death camps of Nazi Germany during World War II. And this is what he writes in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. He says, we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last pieces of bread. They many have been few, they may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof, listen to this, that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. In the middle of the most horrific conditions, Viktor Frankl recognized this, that there was a choice to be made in the midst of circumstances. Contentment, I, I will tell you, I've said this numerous times, circumstances will change. They will. Up, down, sideways, whatever. They're going to change, always. We choose to be content. It's a matter of our heart. So consider this phrase, if my contentment is linked to my circumstances, I will never be content. It is a matter of our heart. Number four, fourth, we need to follow the example of others. Paul says it this way. He says, I have learned the secret of being content. Now that's significant. One of the things that Paul has done in, throughout the book of Philippians, and he does it throughout all of his writing, is that he always encourages people to follow his example as he follows the example of Christ. And when you look at this phrase, I have learned the secret of being content, might we be able to follow his example? Would there be examples of others that we could follow to learn contentment? I would, I would suggest there is. We can learn to be content. And one of the things that always helps me is to follow the example of someone else. I, I can recall growing up, my dad taught me the game of golf when I was five years old. And I would, I'm really grateful for that. Now, what he did, he was not, dad was not the best player. He, he wasn't. He was okay. He loved the game. He loved the exercise that he got from walking the golf course. But here's what I learned. I learned from him how to play. And really, he was the closest person that I had in my life who understood the game. Now, not unlike that, I believe there are people, I believe there are people in your life and in my life 
that we that, that are content, let's find them. Let's walk with them. When we walk with the wise, we can become wise. I believe when we walk with the content, we can learn contentment. You see, contentment is a mark of a true Christ follower. It should be something that is just a part of who we are. That, that phrase, that should not be trivialized. Say, well, of course it is, Gary. I mean, come on. Well, it shouldn't be trivialized. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, we have been beaten been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and gone without food. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us, and by our sincere love. We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. We serve God, whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We're honest but they call us imposters. We are ignored even though we're well known. We live close to death, but we're still alive. We have been beaten, but we have not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor. We have spiritual riches to others. We give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, yet we have everything. There is a guy who understood contentment. He understood it. I want to follow people like that. I don't want to follow the narcissistic. I don't want to follow the dissatisfied. I don't want to follow those who want more, always striving for more. No. I want to follow those who have learned the secret to being content. And number five, we need to be empowered by Christ. Paul says it this way, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Praise God. You can be content as you are empowered by Christ. And as, an, as that empowerment grows and is, hand, as in, as, and is enhanced. You know that here's something that I think we need to really grasp. Much of our frustration in life comes from attempting to control what we cannot control. We work really hard at that. And then we neglect, we neglect to control what we can you and I, you and I will never be content if we feel powerless and helpless. It's never going to happen. And you are going to feel powerless. I am going to feel powerless and helpless and out of control if we are not content to recognize the limits of our own power. We are empowered by Christ. And it is in him that we learn to be content. Reinhold Niebuhr was an incredible theologian, 20th century. And you might be familiar with maybe one of the most popular things he wrote, and that was, it's called the serenity prayer. Look at it with me. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time. Enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as it would have, not as I would have it. Trusting, look at this, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Man, that's powerful. That is so good. 
But do you notice that it's an acknowledgement of accepting what we can control and, and understanding there are some things we can't, but here is, a, here is a key factor that, don't miss this, and most importantly, it's a surrender to the will of God. That's really, I think, an identifying mark of, of saying that Christ has, he is empowering me to be content. And really, it comes down to a matter of trust. Very familiar scripture, trust in the Lord, Proverbs chapter 3, with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. You see, we learn to be content because we learn to trust. We're content in the power of God to provide. Don't miss this. You and I can learn to be content. Those five things can help us learn to be content. So as we conclude today, I wanted to give you a practical story that you can, you can take a look at it in more in depth when you have some time. And it's the story of Joseph. And Joseph is a great character. In fact, he's one of my favorite Old Testament characters. And so just real quick, let me give you, I'm just going to walk through these things really fast to give you the story. You can find the story. It begins in Genesis 37, and then Genesis 39 to 50 is really his story. It's a long narrative. Joseph was born into privilege. He was a son of, of Jacob. He was a favorite son. And there's a lot to be said about Joseph's privilege. His brothers were jealous of him. They didn't like his position with his dad, so they threw him in, literally threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. So he goes from privilege to this, this cistern, this pit. And then he's sold to a man by the name of Potiphar in Egypt. And Potiphar was a, a very successful individual in Pharaoh's, in Pharaoh's ruling class. And Joseph just distinguished himself in everything that he did as a slave for Potiphar. He was then falsely accused by Potiphar's wife that ended Joseph in prison. And once again in prison, everything that he did, God showed him favor. In fact, you can see these, these patterns where the favor of God just rested upon Joseph again and again and again. God used him wonderfully to where the, the warden of the prison didn't really make, he didn't really pay much attention to what was happening because everything prospered under the hand of Joseph. Well, two of Pharaoh's officials got into trouble with Pharaoh. They had dreams. Joseph interpreted their dreams. They came true exactly as he said they would. Then Pharaoh had a dream. And then the, the one who is, had been restored to Pharaoh's court said, oh man, I have forgotten about this, this slave in prison who can interpret dreams because Pharaoh was very troubled by the dream. And so Joseph was asked to come and interpret the dream, in which he did. And out of that, Joseph came into prominence. He literally became in charge of all of Egypt during a period of both prosperity and famine. Well, you fast forward all of this, in the midst of all, in the midst of all I mean, his life went up and down and up and down and all of these things. And one of, the, one of the things that you don't see specifically in his story is him saying, I'm content. But you also don't see him saying, I'm just miserable. Yes, there are some challenges, and you can see that, and he, he recognizes that. 
You know, he even said when he was in jail, he said, this is unjust. I, I shouldn't be here. He's just calling it out what it is. But you don't ever really see him just so discontent. Now, maybe he was, but the, the narrative doesn't tell us that. So now he's been, he's been promoted to this extraordinary place of prominence, okay? And as a gift, the Pharaoh gives him a wife. And his wife, her name is Potiphera. Interesting, interesting. There are two, two observations that I want to give you that I believe are very interesting. The first observation is this. That he acknowledged God's providence. And this is the verse in Genesis 41 that is, just shows, us, shows this very clearly. Joseph had two sons born to him before the years of famine came. Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, excuse me, Asenath was his wife's name. Daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On, was their mother. Joseph named the first one Manasseh, which means forget. Saying, God made me forget all my hardships in my parental home. Second, he, he named his second son Ephraim, which means double prosperity, saying, God has prospered me in the land of my sorrow. You notice the name of his sons? Forget and prosperity. What does that tell me? It tells me that even in the middle of all of the challenges, Joseph remained content. He, he recognized the favor of God, the providence of God in his life, the blessing of God. That's significant. You see, right now, you might be in a very difficult spot, very difficult place. Hear me. God's providence and favor still remains on you. Don't ever forget that. Don't push aside the, all, of the, all of the things that might be happening and, and not learn from them or grow from them. And, and don't look at it from a position of discouragement. Well, I can't, I can't be. No, you can be content. Paul has showed us a pathway. And here we see Joseph who has gone from pit to, to, to a slave, to prison, now to prominence. And he recognizes in the middle of all of that the providence and the blessing of God. Don't miss that. God is still blessing you. God is still with you. God has not forgotten you. God has not forsaken you. Nor will he ever. We can be content no matter what the circumstance. Second thing I learned from Joseph is that he recognized God's plan. So now we fast forward. Jacob has died, and now the brothers are concerned about it. And there's a lot to the story. I can't go into it all. But the brothers are concerned now that Joseph is going to take revenge on them because Jacob is now dead. But here's what we read in Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You notice, you notice to whom he credits everything he's experienced and the outcomes he mentions? It's God. Joseph recognized in everything. He had aha moment after aha moment. God, God has done something amazing here. You've intended, and I can just say, you know something, there's a lot of, there's a lot of potential for the intent the intention of harm that we can experience today. There's no question about that. But I want you to know, God remains at work. God's at work. God is working everything out for his good. Recognizing that creates contentment in us. And I believe it quells dissatisfaction and discontent. Consider this, contentment. 
is resting in God's sovereign sufficiency, no matter how the circumstances change. And that's what Joseph did. One final thought. A harvest of joy is produced from a seed of contentment. Learn to be content. So when I look back over these five things, gratitude, declaring enough is enough, that that it's not circumstantial, that we can follow the examples of others and to be empowered by Christ, joy regardless can be sustained and deepened as we are content. So one more time, a harvest of joy is produced from a seed of contentment. I'm grateful for that. Learn to be content. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you.